Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. It's good to be with you. It's good to open God's Word with you. If you have a Bible this morning, find your way to the New Testament book of John, the first chapter, John chapter 1. We are beginning a new teaching series for the month of December, focusing on the first coming of Christ, uh, traditionally called Advent, perhaps is a term that you've heard, celebrated only by Christians and Catholics, actually. No other religion celebrates Advent. Um, and we don't really hold agreement with anything beyond the birth of Jesus with Catholics. And I don't mean to offend or step on toes or slap people in the face at all, your upbringing or maybe even where you are right now. But as far as Christianity and Catholicism are concerned, we diverge very quickly. Actually, even before the birth of Christ. But we do agree that Christ was born. No other religion celebrates this. Because no other religion has... Jesus Christ as God, as Savior, as King, as sacrifice. That is Christ for us as Christians. And often through December, it is the traditional month when the birth of Christ is specifically remembered. And so we're going to uh, remember Christ's first coming. And though we will focus on the birth, I think it's very important that we kind of tune our thoughts to not simply be about the birth only, the advent of Jesus Christ or the first coming of Jesus Christ led to certain specific events, and that includes his second coming. So the birth is a wonderful thing to talk about, but the birth is not the focal point. And as we go on through this month, uh, we will talk about uh, the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, uh, focusing on several things. December is the traditional month. Indeed, Christians should be remembering the first coming of Jesus Christ always. Because by the first coming, we are led to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ who was sinless, who was perfect. We learn of his life, his ministry on earth, but we are led most importantly to the good news of Jesus Christ, which is not just his birth. And in fact, we could make the argument the good news doesn't have anything to do with his birth, but we won't. The good news has everything to do with his death and his resurrection. And this is the hope that we as Christians hang our faith and eternal hope on. Two quick notes before we move into our passage of scripture this morning. Jesus called the Christ, is important for us to understand as we begin talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ, because though we often see it biblically and read it as a name, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our culture we are tempted to see that as, and people in the world do, view that as a first and last name. This is very important, actually, for us to understand and to be able to talk about. Uh, Jesus is his name, and Christ is his title. Jesus called 
the Christ. The New Testament writers made this distinction, and the Early Testament reader would have understood the distinction being made. I give you simply a few points of Scripture to make this point, and we'll move on. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Before his crucifixion, the council, the Jewish council that would condemn Christ, the wicked men that were rejecting Christ, would ask him, Luke twenty two sixty seven, 67, are you the Christ? Peter heralded in Acts 2, verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In the ancient Greek, the word is Christos. I'm probably pronouncing that more like the Polish pronunciation because I grew up with a Polish grandmother. And every Easter we would hear Christos Voskres, which means he is risen. And the response would be Vostinu uh, Voskres, which means he is risen indeed. This is every Easter walking through the door of my grandmother's house every year without fail. Christos, simply meaning anointed or anointed one. It is the title of Jesus. Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. In the even older Hebrew language, the word is Mashiach, also meaning anointed or anointed one. And this is where we get our modern word, Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. His name is Jesus. There is no end of debate. Second point here quickly. There is no end of debate about the time of Jesus' birth. We remember it throughout December. You cannot align ancient Near Eastern civilization and their calendars to our modern calendar. This is around the time that most scholars and most historians will say this closely aligns with. There is no end of debate. In fact, it was interesting as I did some simple research to bring this information, December is a traditional month for Christianity. From within 100 years of the time that Jesus lived to within 300 years after he lived. So I'm talking from the first century to the third, from just before 100 AD to into 400 AD, a span of 300 years, hardly anything is written about the time of Jesus' birth, simply that he was born. Do you know what the early Christians focused their time on? His death and his resurrection. He was born. He lived. That happened. But he died. He was buried. And he lives again. That happened. So it's interesting to me that for the first 400 years of our faith, which you should know, your faith is ancient. It's 2023. Our faith is 2000, and we can argue older than that, but I'm not discussing the entirety of the Old Testament this morning as well. Our faith is ancient. They didn't spend their time celebrating the birth of Jesus because as important as the first coming is, it is why he came that is critical. As we celebrate the birth of our Savior, as we sing songs celebrating the birth of our Savior, it is understanding 
that the world and time ending cataclysmic nature of his second return is what Christians are to spend their time on. The testimony that Christians have died for, for centuries, is that Christ lived, died, rose again, and is coming again. This is our faith. If you're not sharing that, I don't mean to make you feel bad, but if you're not sharing that, you're missing what countless millions have given their life for over the centuries. He is returning. He died, he was buried, he rose again, and he is returning. And so, in the birth of Jesus, it is the return of Jesus that we are looking to. We praise God for that. Christmas is a warm and funny, funny, I wrote fuzzy, but I said funny, that's interesting. Christmas is a warm and fuzzy feel-good time of year. Not for everyone, I recognize that even in this room there are people who do not enjoy Christmas. There's nothing to be thankful for. It's, it's sad. I recognize that. I have known several people when the season comes around, they don't want anything to do with humanity because they are not themso- themselves full of that warm, fuzzy feeling that the world must hold on to because they don't have Christ. And there are hardships that we suffer in our life at various times in the year that cause us to simply not look forward to the joy that Christmas is. Certain losses in family. Certain, I have friends who lost jobs this past week. They're not entering into the Christmas season full of Christmas cheer because of life circumstances. Life is a hard thing. But it is interesting to me that throughout the Christmas season, you do have this general feeling of a more merry people. I made the point earlier. Christmas songs are on the radio, and though not everyone loves them, many do. They like listening to them and singing them, and whether they are about the fanciful stuff or whether they are about the truth of Jesus Christ, people don't dislike Christmas music. And it's telling messages that most of the time they wouldn't want to listen to. Contrast that now to Easter, or as we would say in the Christian faith, the resurrection. The contrast is vast. Commercialization certainly has grabbed a hold of both of them. And there are even near similarities in how the world observes Easter and Christmas. But you don't hear Easter songs on the radio. And you don't see people walking around joyful, necessarily, at Easter. Why? Well, because Christmas is not offensive, Because the birth of a baby is not offensive, but a blood-stained cross is. An empty grave is foolish. That's the message of Easter. And so it's interesting to me, even as I prepare to open this series, how we enjoy Christmas so much, we're going to spend a month on it, but most Christian churches will only spend a weekend on Easter. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why you will hear some form of the gospel every time we gather. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only news that we have to share. There are different aspects and different angles that all of our lives look at that gospel news every single week. But that is the message that must be heralded. In his first coming, Jesus Christ makes God known to man. This is the purpose In Christ's first coming, he brings us the good news of salvation through faith in him. He tells us of the more important time when he will return to us. As we open this Advent series, looking over the course of this month at his uh, birth, 
looking at the prophecy of his birth, looking today at the need for his birth, we are also going to focus on his life, his death, and his return as we go over the several weeks. I directed your attention to John chapter 1 this morning. If you have a Bible in front of you, John chapter 1, I I didn't say, but if you need a Bible, there are some in the lobby, Uh, please take one if you need one. John chapter 1, would you follow along as I read verses 1 through 5? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we look to you in this time. Father, I I pray for your spirit to speak to the hearts and minds of all those who are gathered, including my own, as you use me to share your word. Father, I pray that we would be stirred at the need for Christ's coming and at the reality of what was accomplished in his coming. Father, I pray that we would understand the need so that we would be in a better position as your people in this world to talk about Christ's first coming with those that we encounter on a regular basis, daily, in our homes, at our work. Father, I pray that your word would strengthen us and equip us to articulate the need for Jesus, that we may be able to share with those around us the need that they have, that we'd be able to speak to the need in our lives that has been fulfilled by him. Father, in this time we look to you and we pray that as your word goes forward in many places, God, that the sinner would be called to repentance and salvation. Father, we pray that the holiness of your people would be promoted, and we pray that Christ, the Savior, would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Jesus Christ, the need for Christ's coming. My purpose in today's message is to make three things crystal clear in two points. We'll see how that goes. Three things in two points. Who is Jesus, where he came from, and why he came? Three things in two points, because who he is and where he came from are so closely related, I was having trouble distinguishing and separating them to make three points. They were just bleeding together, so I said, okay, we'll, we'll do two points in one and then cover a third. Three points in two questions. First, who is Jesus and where did he come from? For many of us, if I were you in your seat right now, confessions of a pastor, if I were you in your seat right now and a pastor said those words to me, I want to confess what I'd be tempted to do. I would be tempted to check out and start reading something else in the Bible. Full confession. Why? Because how often have we heard who Jesus is and where he came from? And how quickly do we as humans, in our frailty, in our flesh, How often are we bored with things that we know? However, the truth of Jesus, who he is and where he came from, is so beautiful. And we as Christians must grab a hold of it so well. This morning, John's topic in his opening statement, would you direct your attention to verse 1? In the beginning was the Word. You will note, and I cross-referenced every English translation. I don't care which one you're holding, King James, New King James, New American Standard, English Standard, Christian Standard. I even looked up Young's literal translation. I looked up the Legacy Standard, which is newer. I don't care what you're holding, New International. Every English translation of the Bible capitalizes word in John chapter 1, verse 1. Every one of them. In the beginning 
was the Word. John's topic in his opening statement to his gospel is the Word. It's been said that John's gospel is a preacher's gospel because he gives a purpose statement, he gives background, it's just, it's beautiful the way he lays it out. He comes at the end and ties it all together. It's just a wonderful gospel. If you're wondering what should I read in the scripture, I encourage you, read the gospel of John. He says, in the beginning was the Word. This is because in just a few short sentences, John is going to link the word to a real, physical person. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John links the word to a person. And then in just a few more sentences, John would link the word being a person in the flesh down in verse 17 to Jesus Christ. So he opens in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John's gospel is focusing on the person of Jesus Christ. In John 1, 1 through 7, but specifically in verses 1 and 2, John is identifying that this person existed, note the first three words, in the beginning. This is not a mistake on John's part. Now, we need to remember, God wrote the Bible, but he used man to do it. And so it is no mistake at all that Christians agreed that the canon of Scripture should include the first three words of the Bible as in the beginning, and that John then also begins his gospel with in the beginning. In the beginning, the word. And if we think about what is said in that beginning of Genesis, what does it say? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ, in the beginning, the Word with God. John wanted us to think about that, and he wanted us to look at verse 3. His readers would have understood the ancient Hebrew, in the beginning, and John's writing, in the beginning, and they would have linked. John is talking about Genesis. They would have known this. Torah, says the first three words in the beginning. And every Jewish reader would have known those three words. They memorized the Torah. And so when John writes his letter in, it is assumed figuratively around AD 70, one of the last gospels to be written. And John doesn't write his from an account perspective. Like Luke says, I've examined everything carefully. He writes his experience with Christ, when John opens and says, in the beginning, he wants us to think about, he wanted his readers then and us now to think about, in the beginning, Jesus Christ was there. This is so important for us. Jesus Christ is God. And so, prior to his first coming, he didn't have a name. Interesting. Prior to his first coming, He is the eternal Son of God. He's nameless, if you will. He is God. Simply, He is 
God, prior to his first coming, prior to his birth, prior to Joseph's obedience to God who said, you shall name him Jesus. You shall call him Jesus. The word is what John wants us to focus on. The truth. As we recollect Genesis 1, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 2, and the earth was formless and void and without feature, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be, spoke by his word, and he spoke, and it was, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together in the beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word is known as the eternal Son of God. I'm going to focus on those two points, eternal and Son of God. The eternal Son of God named Jesus at his birth. God said by the prophet Micah, who prophesied around 750 to 700 B.C., that is 700 years prior to Christ's birth, prophesied that out of Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, one would come from God, the verse reads, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I looked up those two words, of old and ancient. In the original Hebrew, they carry with them everlasting and eternal. One will come from God whose coming forth is from eternity, whose coming forth is from everlasting. Weeks ago, we read in Psalm, I believe, chapter 90, Moses wrote the words, from everlasting, O God, you are. And John here, saying how Christ is in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, linking the eternal Son of God, the Word in flesh, Jesus, to that eternal, all-existing One. He came from the Father. He is eternal. He came from the Father. The Bible calls Him the begotten Son of God. If you memorize John 3.16 in the King James Version, as most of us did, you remember, reciting the words, gave his only begotten son. Begotten. What does that mean? Begotten. It means born to. Begotten. I have six children begotten to me by God. God had one son begotten to him. He came from the Father. The Bible calls him begotten. But the eternal Son, eternally God, has no beginning. This is a heresy that exists that you need to identify. Christ is an eternal God. Eternally with the Father. Eternally with the Spirit. Eternally the Son of God. And the Bible says that he is begotten of God. So there is the teaching that God, using Mary, gave birth to the Son. Now, a lot of you thought, oh, pastor, that, that does sound right. No. The eternal Son of God became flesh, took on. This is very important. The big word is incarnation. His incarnation. That's a big word that simply means, I don't want you to be distracted by it, it simply means clothed in flesh. The eternal Son of God became clothed in flesh. We know if we've experienced the joys of childbirth, we've seen a child born, they come out and they're clothed in flesh. That is what happened with the eternal Son of God. Remember the prophecy, which we'll look at next week and then the actual birth in a couple of weeks. The prophecy says, Mary, the angel said, you will conceive in your womb. Well, that's normal. 
What is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. And Mary's right question, again, which we'll look at, is how can this be? I'm a virgin. I've never been with a man to become pregnant. And the angel says, the most high, the power of the most high will overshadow you. Oh, those are blessed words for us. And you will conceive. The Holy Spirit will cause to, for you to conceive and give birth to a son. He came from the Father, but he is eternal with the Father. This is deep. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the blessed Holy Trinity existing eternally as one yet distinct. God, the eternal Son, has always been at the side of God, the eternal Father. He has always existed fully as God. He has always been the second person of the Trinity. He's never been more or less. You can't be more God. He is all God. He's never been less than God. And it's interesting how this another big word, theological, study of God, this theological thought is encapsulated in a line from a Christmas song. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. We recognize in the famous Christmas song, Silent Night, that Jesus was born as this child, this frail, dependent, needy baby. Yet Lord, yet King, yet sacrifice from the very beginning and from eternity. At his incarnation, at his clothing with flesh, God the eternal son was given the name Jesus, as we have already examined, and he was given that name forevermore. There is a turning point in the scripture that perhaps you've considered, perhaps you haven't, where there is God, there is the Lord God, there is the Spirit of God, there are figures that look like Jesus even in the Old Testament, but we never hear that name until the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. And she brought forth her first son, and she called him Jesus. And forevermore, the eternal son of God is forevermore the Lord Jesus Christ. At his incarnation, John 1.14, the word became flesh. Philippians 2, 7 and 8, being born in the likeness of of men being found in human form Colossians 2:9 for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily all of the eternal son came we just sang the words look to Christ who condescended took on flesh and ransomed us the eternal son of god wrapped in our frail Weak, broken form. He is eternal and he is the Son of God. The Bible makes so clear that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't assume that there are many who doubt Jesus as the eternal Son of God in the room, but it is important to understand those two aspects as distinct when we talk, when we talk about him. Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God, always God, always the Son of God, is the Son of God. The Bible makes this so clear. Here are a few references. I'll try to move slowly so you can note them. Matthew 16, chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus is asked by his disciples who they thought he was. Very famous story. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're Elijah. 
And some say that you're this other prophet. And some say that you're that prophet. People are not necessarily very sure who you are. And then Christ says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? It, this is still the question. We, with the tract that we handed out last night, the gospel tract we had available for people coming, literally, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You must answer this question. I can tell you what the answer is, but I have to answer it too. And you have to answer. And it's not just knowing, it's believing and living that answer. Who is Jesus? After asking them, who do people say that I am? Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And the Bible says that Peter, that hothead, reactionary, just kind of guy, you are the Christ, the Son of God, Matthew 16, 16. What's beautiful is that in Matthew 16, 17, Christ fully affirms Peter's response. He says to him, oh, Peter, blessed are you because flesh and blood did not reveal this answer to you. This answer came from God. Mark begins his gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is his opening line. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Luke chapter 2, verse 36, Gabriel tells Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. An interesting reference, Luke chapter 4, verses 3 and 9, Satan tempts Jesus. We're familiar with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan. But do you know that in Luke 4, 3 and 9, Satan says these words to him, which I think is incredibly telling in itself. You know what he says? If you are the Son of God. The, those words alone reveal Satan's knowledge of who Jesus is. If you are, do these things. And he, what does he do? What Satan does, what he's always done. He twists the words of God to cause Jesus to what? disobey the word of God and so show that he is not the son of God. But what does Jesus do? Being the word, being eternally God in the flesh, being human, tried in every way as we are yet without sin, able to sympathize in all of our weaknesses yet without sin. What does Jesus do? No, it is written. God has said the word says, and he counters Satan's distortion. It's beautiful. Everything that goes wrong in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, everything that goes wrong in the Garden, Jesus does right. Christ, we just sang the words, Christ, the true and better Adam. John wrote in his gospel, his purpose statement comes at the very end. I always think, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I better tell people right at the beginning what my purpose in the sermon is because if I don't, they might not pay attention thinking it's just going to meander about and go nowhere. No, there's always a purpose. It's interesting for me that the preacher's gospel, John, his purpose statement is at the end of the gospel. He wants you to read the whole thing and then tell you why he wrote it. He says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, all of these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is why John's gospel exists. He says, and it is called into question all the time, We've been teaching the students at the break about God's word, about the writing of God's word, about the composition of the Bible and the books that are contained wherein. And there are countless other books also that have been written that aren't in here. And people question this often. What about all those other writings? John literally addresses that in John chapter 20. Would everything of Jesus be written 
the world does not contain enough pages or books. There are a lot of writings about Jesus in existence. These are the writings by faith that God has given for us to know about him and to be saved. Paul writes to Timothy, the scriptures are able to make one wise unto salvation. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes to the Galatian church, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born to a woman. I was even considering, you have John chapter 1 open in front of you, flip over, whatever, maybe it's a page, maybe it's two pages, flip over to John chapter 3. Direct your attention to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look what Jesus goes on to say. He is the son. Saying these words, it's fantastic. For God did not send his son into the world down toward the end of verse 18. Those who are condemned are condemned. They have not believed in the name of the son of God. The point of John's gospel is for us to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If he is the Son of God, he is God. If he is God, he is eternal. Jesus Christ in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, true statement. The eternal Son with the eternal Father, with the eternal Spirit. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Why did he need to come? Why did he need to come? We all know the simple Sunday school answer. Most Americans have at least a sixth grade Sunday school Bible education. Why did he come? Simply because of man's sin. That's the answer that we would most normally give really quickly. Because of man's sin. More intricately, the eternal Son of God became the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem his people and save them unto his God eternally. The Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem and save his people for God and from God's wrath against sin. Paul was so clear. The wrath of God is coming. And we are in need of a savior to be spared that wrath. Ephesians 5, 6 and Colossians 3, 6. Because of sin, the wrath of God is coming. The sin of Adam in the garden, which we examined at the start of the Family Matters series about one month ago, the sin of Adam in the garden in disobeying God's command plunged all of humanity into utter darkness. Man walks around blinded because of sin. All of humankind for all of time has been separated from God who is perfectly holy. He is without sin. He is without error. And no one can dwell with him unless purified from sin. And so the need for Christ to come is to purify a people unto God himself. More than 700 years before the Messiah's birth, God, through the prophet Isaiah, wrote, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. This is why in John 1, John writes, verse 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The need for Jesus to come into the world is the darkness of sin that is covering the world. We could not find our way to God without the light of God showing us the way. 
1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, through the apostle Paul. Apostle simply means messenger or sent one. God writes, this statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. At his incarnation, God, the eternal son, became the only man ever born not needing a redeemer. I don't know how often we think about these simple yet deep thoughts. Christ was born without the need for redemption. Not even his mother was in that category. All of the eternal Son of God, wrapped in all of the frailty and weakness of man, yet so much stronger than man. Born holy. The child will be called holy, the son of God, born without the need of redemption. We've had babies born recently. There are babies to be born in the future. We praise God and pray for more babies to be born to fill the earth with the image, of glory, image and glory of God. But every one of those babies will be born in sin and death. And they need Jesus. I sat the other day in study just pondering that the blessed mother Mary, don't let those words scare you. It says in the Bible, Luke chapter two, verse 28, the angel said, greetings, O favored one. Luke two, verse 48, Mary says, from now on all generations will call me blessed. We're like, oh, Catholics, they're worship of Mary. No, 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 we shouldn't worship Mary, that's for sure. But God wanted us to know Mary is blessed among women. She carried and suffered and delivered, moms, you've been there, and delivered our Lord. She gave birth to the only man never needing redemption. And she gave birth to the only man who could rightly die for sin. And as God rightly and fully overcome death, do you understand when we hear that phrase, which is so often just thrown around in the church world, and I don't want it to just be thrown around and not understood. He's fully God and fully man. What does that even mean? What means that he was fully man? Like he lived like we do. He was in a body like us, and he faced temptation like us. That's correct. But let your thinking develop further on that. If he dwelt in this body as a man, and if he faced every temptation like us, what was he faced with? He was faced with to obey or not. And what did he do? He obeyed perfectly. He says to John, baptize me. John says, it's I who should be baptized by you. What does Jesus say? No, 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 no. It is necessary that we fulfill all righteousness. Perfectly obedient in all ways, in all regards. And what happens? He's tried. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's crucified. The very supper that we come to and find ourselves celebrating and worshiping the Lord with this morning, the very reason of his coming, his death, was able to pay for man because he suffered as a man and was able to overcome because he is God, fully man, fully God. Why did Jesus need to come? Because God has a people that he intends to save. This is the heartbeat of our mission as Christians. 
God has a people that he intends to save. And so we are to be proclaiming the good news to the whole creation that men as they hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ will be saved and redeemed and purified through faith in the Savior, sealed by the Spirit and saved unto eternity before their Father. Why did he come? Because God has a people that he intends to have with him in eternity. And currently, they are under the curse of sin. Man is under the curse and wages of sin. Man could never atone for sin before God, the eternal Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. I love verse 3, showing that he is the creator. And without him was not anything made that was made. Christ active in creation. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. And so I ask this morning, who is Jesus? His first coming had a purpose to identify and make known to you God. John chapter 1, verse 18. He has made him known. It says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who do you say Jesus is? As you sit here this morning, as you sing, as you look forward to Christmas, as we consider the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who do you say he is? Is he just a decoration that comes out and is placed on the mantle every December? Is he just the nice Christmas songs that you enjoy throughout, well, I guess nowadays it's all of November and December and into January? Or is Jesus Christ the only eternal Son of God? As we consider even nativity, which we can talk about, the wise men and all those details at another time, Consider the gifts that he brought. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Have you ever considered those? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm leading you to contemplate Christ more in your life. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Pastor, what does that have to do with who Jesus is? They brought him gold because gold is what you give a king. He has a crown, and they brought gold. They brought him frankincense because you are to offer unto God a pleasing aroma and fragrance, and frankincense is so sweet and such a good smell. They brought him myrrh because he is the only sacrifice. Jesus Christ is God, king, and sacrifice. And for the wages of your sin, he is the only atonement. We're going to share the Lord's Supper this morning, if you're here and you're not a member of the church, that's okay. If you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this meal is for you. The Bible says that Christ, when he was betrayed, on that night took bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you. Take this and eat it. And as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. Followed by the bread, he took the cup he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Take it, drink it, and as often as you do, do it in remembrance of me. Christ's first coming is something that we celebrate with great joy and great triumph. 
the Lord's Supper is something that we celebrate with great somber thought that the eternal Son of God would put on flesh and die for us. By his wounds we are healed. By his blood we are forgiven. Have you trusted in Christ? As we approach the Lord's Supper, it's right to ask, if you're here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, do so now. Our brother read from Psalm 95 this morning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's the greatest warning sounded through all of Scripture. Today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your heart. God is holy. Man is sinful. Christ is the only redemption and atonement for sin. Repent of sin. Call on him. Be saved. If you want to talk more about salvation, I would love to talk with you after this service is over. For now, I would call the church to a moment of reflection. Do you have sin that you need to confess to God? Do so. If you're here and you do not understand this supper that we're going to share, this meal, it's a cracker and it's juice. This is a poor example of a meal, but it is looking forward to the day that we will share at the wedding feast of the Lamb with God in heaven. If you're here and you don't know what this means, and you're not sure, I, I don't know, Pastor, you're saying things and I don't understand them, then when these things pass you, I want to give you a very safe warning. Let them pass. The Bible says that in taking and observing this and worshiping God wrongly can bring condemnation on you. We're already under enough condemnation. If you don't know what these things mean, let them pass. If you are here today and you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are holding on to the hope of Jesus for all eternity, then receive these elements with joy, knowing what Christ has done for you. I'm going to have some men come. I'll pray, and then we'll serve the elements. Father, Father, it is with fear and trembling that we are before you this morning. For though in the safety of this room and in the security, the weak and feeble security of our flesh, we recognize that in the Spirit, we stand before a holy God. We recognize, Father, that if you were to, in person, come into this room, we would all, as dead men, fall. We recognize, Father, that through the Spirit, through faith in Christ, we, like the Israelites of old, are before a mountain that smokes and is touched with fire. Father, we do not see nor do we feel flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder, nor are our ears deafened by a loud trumpet sound. But in this moment, we acknowledge that we are before your throne, where angels cry, holy, 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 where multitudes upon multitudes for eternity will sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Father, in this moment, we bow our heart. We surrender our mind, our anxious thoughts, our spirits to you. Thankful that in our need, Lord Jesus, you came out of eternity into this life to redeem unto our Father in heaven those who confess you as Lord and profess faith in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for meeting the greatest need that exists in every person's life. And we pray today, Father, that through our witness and through the preaching and through the singing and the praying and the reading of Scripture, God, that you will have rescued and will rescue others. Now in this moment, Father, we turn to honor you through your supper, through the Lord's Supper, through communion. 
recognizing that it is only through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are able to stand. We come naked to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. Foul I to you, the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Oh God, forgive us. We are sinners. We praise you for the bread. We praise you for the cup. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you have achieved in saving us unto a holy God. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.